0: Evening. Um, this evening's passage is taken from 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 to 24. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practise righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning Whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, by the spirit whom he has given us. Praise be to God.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, This is um, a farewell Sunday um, for well, for Scott and myself and Fiona and the boys. um, It is worth saying that um, Fiona and uh, the boys and I will be here for for, for two more Sundays after this one. So um, I'll be speaking next Sunday evening and we'll be here again on the 26th. Scott next Sunday is his final Sunday here. But it is still a good point at which to thank you all, I think, as a church family, um, for your love and for your care and for your partnership uh, with us, um, for Fiona and I, with uh, 11 years we've been here together, uh, and Fiona, as Robin mentioned, having been here uh, for a lot longer than that. Uh, and over the past four years, the investment of the elders, uh, of, of Roger and Jay, and particularly of Robin, um, apart from our parents, uh, no one has invested more, I think, in training and equipping us to serve Jesus than you have. And uh, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to you for all that's involved. So thank you very, very much. Uh, Now, we've already had our Bible reading. Thank you very much, Zucan, for reading from 1 John. Please keep that open in front of you over the next few minutes whilst we think about it together. But before we do that, I'm just going to to pray for us again. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have this evening to gather together and to study your words. And we ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the thoughts, the reflections, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, a friend of mine once told me that when he was a young boy, he was once asked which family he belonged to. And for some of us, that might well seem like an innocuous question, a question that we can answer pretty quickly without having to give it much thought, but my friend, well, the question of which family he belonged to was a cause of real uncertainty and of a fair bit of anxiety. He had been adopted not long before he was asked the question. He'd previously lived in a very complicated and quite difficult family environment and he'd been adopted into a steady and a caring one. And so for him, especially in the early months and years after being adopted, working out which family he belonged to wasn't that straightforward. And in fact, even thinking about that kind of question for too long caused him a great deal of anxiety at that stage because in his young mind, which hadn't fully grasped the kind of permanence of his new living situation, well, the stakes were really high Do I belong to this caring, loving family environment permanently now? Is this my home? Or am I going to return to that family environment which was so unsettled and unhappy? To whose family do I really belong? And the reason I begin with that is that my friend's sense of uncertainty, uncertainty about the family he belonged to, And his awareness of the stakes involved in how he answered that question, well, that's the same kind of anxiety which John's first readers were facing when he wrote to them. See, it made all the difference in the world to the church family John's writing to, to know for certain whose spiritual family they belonged to. Now, if you've been here on Sunday evenings over the past few weeks, we've seen that the church John's writing to is in some ways coming apart at the seams. There's a group of people from within the church who've declared themselves to be more spiritual than everyone else, to have a greater kind of spiritual knowledge than other people in the church. And that apparently kind of superior group had departed from the teaching they'd received from the apostles, they'd rejected it. And they departed from the church family itself And you might understand why that would be an unsettling thing for the people who'd remained. Have we really got this right? They're left thinking. Should we actually be following those guys who are leaving? I mean, they were our brothers and sisters after all. And they sound so persuasive. And so as Robin mentioned, one of the big reasons John wrote this letter was to reassure those Christians who stuck with the apostles' teaching to reassure them, as we'll see this evening, chapter 3, verse 10, if you look down at that, to reassure them that they are children of God. And in our passage tonight, he does that by convincing them of the negative, by convincing them that, that they are not, chapter 3, verse 10, children of the devil. It's very strong language, that's the language John chooses to use. How does he do that? Well, he convinces them of the negative, verse 10, by telling them, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's a lot of negatives. It might sound a bit confusing at first reading, but the negatives are the point, I think. You can spot someone who isn't in God's family, says John, by the fact that they don't love other Christians. And his point, I think, is that by knowing who isn't in God's family, you can be sure that you are. That's the logic in 1 John chapter 3. Let's think about it in a bit more detail together. Uh, there are some uh, headings on the back of your service sheet. You might find it helpful to have those open in front of you, too. The first of those is, don't be surprised when brothers hate you. That's verses 11 to 15. Now, you may or may not have heard the phrase, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It's one of those sayings that's been attributed to a few different people. I'm not actually sure who first said it. But it has kind of echoed through the 20th century as people made the same mistakes in history again and again and again, and no one seemed to learn from them. In verses 11 to 15 of 1 John 3, John wants his readers to learn from history. Not so much because he doesn't want them to repeat those mistakes. No, he wants them to learn from history so they aren't surprised when history repeats itself. What do I mean? Well, just look with me at verse 12 of chapter 3. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And if you don't know um, what John's talking about there, Cain appears in Genesis 4 near the very beginning of the Bible. Cain had a brother called Abel. To cut the story uh, short, uh, Abel was faithful to God. Cain was not faithful to God. Abel hated Cain, Uh, sorry, Cain hated Abel and Cain killed Abel. That's the story in a nutshell. Why does John mention it here? Well, John spells it out, verse 12, and why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What's going on there? Well, John's asking his readers to look back into the history books to a time when one brother saw another brother doing the right thing before God. When when that first brother knew that he himself hadn't done the right thing before God and so hated his brother. And just think for a moment about how that maps onto the situation John's first readers found themselves in. As Christians, they had done the right thing before God by remaining faithful to him, by sticking with the apostles' teaching. And yet others from within their church, people who they had previously seen as brothers, had not done the right thing. And so just as Cain hated Abel for doing the right thing, John's warning his readers to expect people, even people who look like brothers, to hate them for doing the right thing. Don't be surprised when that happens, says John. Now, in case you're wondering why the warning in verse 13 is that the world will hate you, well, we'll see next week in chapter 4 that those who've departed from the apostles' teaching are in leagues with the unbelieving world around them. John says they're from the world. They speak from the world. The world listens to them. And I wonder if you can see how that would be of help to this weak-looking group of Christians who'd stuck with the apostles' teaching. See, it's one thing that the world around them would be hostile to them for believing in Jesus, but when that kind of hatred comes from someone who looks like another Christian, someone whom you used to think of as a brother, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? That's the situation John's first readers were facing, and can I just say it was ever thus… If you're a Christian, it might not come as a huge surprise when people who who don't follow Jesus give you grief for being a Christian. That might not be a huge surprise to you. We've seen it as we have studied Luke's gospel over the course of the past few months together. But it's far more of a surprise when people who do purport to follow Jesus make life difficult for Christians to follow Jesus. And as a church family corporately, Quite a number of us have experience of that together, being made to feel as though we must have got it wrong, as though we were doing the unloving thing for sticking with Jesus and the apostles' teaching, and perhaps even beginning to wonder whether we might actually have got it wrong. Because otherwise, why would other Christians be so strong in their reactions against us? And even if you can't identify with that experience that many of us have shared in together, If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you may well have experienced something similar on a personal level. Perhaps you can think of a Christian friend from the past, maybe even someone you were really close to at one point, who has drifted from the Christian faith now, and when you speak to them, it's not just that they're ambivalent about Christianity, they're actually quite hostile towards you and to what you believe. Let me give you one concrete example from my own life as I was reflecting on that uh, that this week. There's a person whom I used to know relatively well. Uh, He was pretty clear about sticking with Jesus. He led various uh, Christian youth groups when I was doing the same thing. We kind of lost touch for a few years until he connected with me again more recently. It transpires that he now works for a large church organization. But it also transpires that he is now vehemently anti the apostles' teaching particularly on ethics and morality issues. And in fact, he actually sees part of his calling now as someone who's, who's been shown the light to kind of call out horrible, backward-looking Christians that he used to be a part of, Christians like me. Now, that's a sad situation for me to observe, obviously, when someone rejects what the Bible teaches. But it can also be a deeply unsettling thing when someone whom you once considered to be a brother or sister even a leader in a church family is now cold or even hostile towards you for sticking with Jesus and it can make you start to wonder have I really got this right or have they done the right thing by by leaving you no know, John says if you've stuck with the apostles teaching if you're still listening to Jesus and what he's told us about himself in his, his word then you have got it right but that just like Abel, whose brother hated him for trying to be faithful to God, don't be surprised when even those who look like brothers hate you. That's our first point this evening. And I wonder if you've ever seen any TV documentaries uh, about border police or border cops or something similar, police who keep tabs on who and what is being brought into a given country. Uh, Most episodes of those kinds of shows, uh, and there are quite a few of them, a few of those kinds of shows, most of the episodes seem to be pretty similar. There's often someone who's caught trying to smuggle some kind of exotic animal into another country, you know, trying to sneak a panda through security in their hand luggage, often something similar. And very often someone is caught trying to make their way through security using a fake passport. And there are two ways that border cops can usually spot a fake passport. They can spot it because it obviously looks like a fake. It might have been badly manufactured, for example, and the print stick hasn't quite dried around the edges yet. Or they might spot it by comparing it to the real thing. Because when you hold a fake-up against a genuine passport, one that has all of the watermarks and, and has the right number of characters in the serial number, well, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly when a counterfeit is a counterfeit we've just been thinking about the fact that as Christians we shouldn't be surprised when people who who perhaps we used to think of as brothers begin to hate us but it isn't necessarily always that obvious when people hate you I mean it's a very strong word even to use in our culture at least uh, it's not that obvious to spot it as grown-ups children are often a bit better at making clear when they want to that they hate somebody grown-ups can do a pretty good job of hiding that though can't we we can be polite we can bite our tongue And actually, John says that for Christians, the problem is a bit worse than that. Because the people who really hate you, well, they might actually say they love you. Let's think about that under our second heading this evening. Don't be fooled by love in words only, verses 16 to 18. Now, we do need to be mindful of the context when we read through verses 16 to 18, because at first glance, they sound very positive, don't they? Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's quite a stirring verse. But you'll notice I've given these verses the heading, don't be fooled, which sounds a little bit less stirring, a little bit more negative. But I think it is the tone of what John's trying to say. And the reason I think it's the tone of what John's trying to say is those five words at the beginning of verse 16. Just look at those again with me. By this we know love. John's about to hold up the genuine article, the real passport, if you like. This is what the real deal looks like. This is what Christian love is. And what is it, verse 16, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers? The hallmark of the genuine article of real Christian love is that it looks like Jesus. It's a laying down of our lives for our brothers and sisters as Christians. And you see, when compared with that, when viewed alongside the real deal, well, the counterfeit is quite obviously a counterfeit. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth." See, the difference between counterfeit love and genuine love is that the counterfeit won't put their money where their mouth is. They might say they love, but actions suggest otherwise. Now why might John be telling his readers about how to spot a counterfeit? Well, I guess again, because it might well look pretty persuasive to them. The old friend I told you about earlier, for example, who now works for that church institution, to my knowledge, not once has he ever told any other Christians now that he hates them for what they believe. It's quite the opposite, in fact. He's tripping over himself to tell people that the reason he wants them to walk away from the apostles' teaching is because he loves them. He wants what's best for them. He doesn't want them to be found standing on the wrong side of history. And that kind of logic can give you pause, can't it? It can me anyway. Is this person really just looking out for me? Is he trying to do me a a good turn? Is he or she actually trying to do me some good? Perhaps you can think of similar situations in your own life of those who've who've walked away from the Christian faith and tried to convince you to do likewise, and they've done so on the basis, not that they hate you, but because they really, really care for you, John would have us ask, I think, do they really? Is that love a, a genuine love, or is it all talk and no action? sending you a Facebook message, for example, or an email, perhaps, to tell you that you've got it all wrong about the Christian faith. They're a bit concerned about you. The only reason they're getting in touch is because they really love you and they want what's best for you. That can sound quite persuasive. I think John would have us asked the question, would that love go further than a Facebook message? If things ever got really tough, for example, that's the illustration John uses. If things got really tough in your life, Is this the kind of person who's going to reach out and try and help you are they actually committed to your good? and if not then don't be fooled by love and words only says john don't be taken in and that's our second point this evening now if you're a christian i wonder how all of what we've thought about so far has made you feel Some of us might well be feeling reassured robin has mentioned that uh, once or twice Uh, earlier on in the service that's one of uh, john's big outboxes you might be reassured that even though people might have given you a hard time for it even other folks whom you 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 thought of as brothers and sisters in the lord jesus give you a hard time for it that you haven't got it wrong by sticking with jesus and his apostles you might be reassured in that sense and if that's the case then that's great because that is one of john's big purposes but my guess is that lots of us will have heard what John's had to say so far, and even if we're feeling reassured in in that sense, we might also be feeling a bit unsettled by what he's said. Not because we, we, we've worried we've got it wrong to stick with Jesus, but because whilst John has mainly been highlighting the hallmarks of fake love, of the counterfeit. He's also been clear that one of the marks of authentic faith in Jesus, of real love, is real love for our brothers. And whilst Chalmers is a church family of real love, we've benefited from that, I said that earlier, we've benefited from that as a family, hugely, so richly, over the past years. Well, we may well feel ourselves being confronted with the fact that, personally, on an individual level, We don't always love one another like Jesus has loved us, at least not all of the time. That might well be pricking your conscience, even as I've been speaking. It might well be leaving you feeling far from reassured, perhaps even like a bit of a hypocrite. Well, if that is you, you aren't alone. And in fact, John anticipates just that kind of reaction. He wants to make sure you know just what to do with it if you're a Christian. Let's think about that under our final heading this evening. Don't lose confidence. God is greater than your heart, so stick with Jesus, verses 19 to 24. Now, there are a number of different ways in which we might reassure someone, aren't there? When someone is going into hospital for some kind of procedure, for example, and they're really worried about what's about to happen, one kind of surgeon might reassure them in a kind of therapeutic way might put a hand on the patient's arm and tell them, I'm I'm sure it will all be fine. That's one kind of reassurance. Another kind of surgeon might offer something a little bit more concrete than that. Might reassure the patient by telling them of the number of times they've performed that kind of surgery might reassure the patient by telling them of the percentages of success in that kind of surgery unless of course the surgeon actually has a terrible track record in that kind of surgery in which case it's a good idea surgeon keep your mouth shut but that second kind of reassurance is a different kind of reassurance than the gentle hand on the arm isn't it it's a reassuring someone by persuading them of the truth of the reality of their situation and the reason i mention that is that, as I've mentioned in these closing verses, John's objective is reassurance. We see that in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before them. Why does John need to reassure his readers at this point in the letter? Well, as I've mentioned, after all they've just heard about loving their brothers, verse 20, their hearts are condemning them. Let me just take you for a moment from the operating theatre to a courtroom. In the dock stands a faithful Christian as one accused. And standing behind the bench for the prosecution is that Christian's own heart, their conscience. The charges brought against you today, Christian, are that you have not loved your brothers and sisters as Jesus loved you in a self-sacrificial way, and that you don't look like a child of God all of the time. And the truth is that for, I guess, any of us, if we find ourselves in that courtroom being condemned by our own hearts, Well, the prosecution isn't short of evidence, which supports their case very often, are they? All of the times that we haven't loved our brothers and sisters in a self-sacrificial way, or we've put our interests before theirs. John's addressing the Christian whose heart is condemning them, whose heart has them in the dock. And as he does that, he doesn't offer them a gentle hand on the arm. They're there. I'm sure you're more loving than you think you are. You aren't giving yourself enough credit. No, John's reassurance is to persuade them of the truth. Verse 20 Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Your heart might be leading the argument for the prosecution. But John says, Christian, you've one who is far greater defending you. You You've God on your side. Now, as is often the case in this letter, John's returning to themes that we've seen trailed earlier on. Because John has already argued that a genuine Christian is not someone who doesn't sin anymore. In fact, anyone who claims they don't sin are deceiving themselves, according to John. No, a genuine Christian is honest about their sin before God, confesses their sin to God, finds forgiveness from God because of Jesus' death on their behalf. And so yes, they pursue obedience to Jesus, yes, they try to love their brother, and we'll see that again in chapter 4, but when they fail, and fail they will, They come back to Jesus, to the one who is greater than their hearts. The idea is similar in these verses, isn't it? Just notice how he summarizes that idea in verse 23. This is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Love one another, says John. That's a mark of genuine faith. It really is. and believe in Jesus and all he's done for you. That's another defining mark of a Christian. These two things go together hand in hand for the the Christian. All of which means when you're confronted with reality that you haven't loved your brother or sister as you might have done, That you've prioritized your own interests over other Christians. You might well feel condemned. Your own heart might be doing an excellent job as a prosecuting lawyer this evening. When we feel that, what do we do? Verse 19, we reassure ourselves. Not with gentle platitudes, not with half truths, we persuade ourselves of the truth preach truth to yourself, have a conversation with yourself. That's the weight of what John is saying, that though God knows everything, He knows the inner workings of your heart better than even you do, and that though that heart would condemn you for your failings, that God in His grace is greater than our hearts. And so we can have confidence as we approach Him Now, if you are here this evening, and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, firstly, let me say that we are delighted that you're here. But it is just worth pausing at this point, I think, to ask whether you would have reason to be confident before God. See, the Bible's answer to that question, for all of us, outside of Jesus, is no, The Bible tells us that all of us have fallen short of God and stand in the dock, rightly condemned. Not just in the sense that our heart condemns us, but objectively condemned by a holy God for having rejected Him. And so you too, whether you feel it or not, find yourself standing in the dock. And there's no one to argue for your defense unless you trust in Jesus. The one who, verse 16, laid down his life for you so that you might be forgiven and free and confident that you are free. It is a really wonderful offer. Let me implore you to consider that offer for yourself this evening because it's of utmost importance. Don't put it off. Let me again close by addressing the uncertain Christian, though, unsure as to whether you've got it right or not, whose family you really are in, whether you're doing the right thing by sticking with Jesus or not, whether you're a child of of God or a child of the devil, in, in John's words. John wants to reassure you that even though you might well be hated by people who look like brothers, That you've done the right thing by sticking with jesus and his apostles teaching and he again wants to reassure you that though none of us love our brothers and sisters as jesus has loved us perfectly and though our hearts condemn us of that and they do time and time and time again that as we trust in the name of jesus cast ourselves on the grace of god that we can no reassurance real and meaningful reassurance we can have confidence to approach a holy God because God is greater than our hearts it's a wonderful thing I do hope and pray that you would feel that reassurance even this evening let me pray to our God now and ask him for his help as we do so let's pray together Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that you've made those of us who've trusted in Jesus your children, not because of anything inherently lovable in us, but because of your extraordinary kindness. And we praise you too that being part of your family gives us confidence when, as Christians, we might face hostility in the world today, even from those whom we might have considered to be brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. We can have confidence knowing that sticking with you is the safest place to be. Help each of us, Lord, please, to do so, even when it's hard. And for those of us who don't know you yet, we do ask, Lord, you to please enable us to take hold of the grace that you offer, the grace that is greater than even our hearts which would condemn us, to trust in the cross of the Lord Jesus for our forgiveness, and so be welcomed into your glorious family. We ask all of these things, entrusting ourselves into the care and the grace of the Lord Jesus, and we do so for his sake. Amen.